So, a couple of weeks ago, I made a post on the So All Right subreddit asking for questions. I, I was thinking it might be fun to do a little Q&A session on one of these. And uh, I let it run for about three weeks, and then I went and collected a bunch of the questions, uh, which y'all had some awesome ones. I wasn't able to pick them all, and I there were a lot that had a lot of overlap. A lot of parenting questions where I, I'll be honest with you, I just don't feel qualified to answer um, I've fumbled through the the parenting of one child. I think there's probably a lot more people out there that are a lot more qualified to answer parenting questions than I. But uh, anyway, it was a lot of fun, and I was uh, I really enjoyed reading your questions. And if you if you ever have any questions or anything you want me to cover on this podcast, I'm sure I'll do something like this again. Especially if you guys like it and enjoy it, and there's value in it. If not, then I'll never fucking touch it again. Uh, I promise you that. Regardless, if you think of any questions, instead of chasing down that subreddit, you could just email it to me, just eric at jeffsboss.com or jeff at ericsboss.com. Uh, shoot me a question. I'll collect them all, and then maybe sometime in the in the future, I'll do this again. Okay, the first question was from Mongoosey. How's the comedy scene in Austin now that it's the comedy mecca with people like Tom Segura, Joe Rogan, Ron White, Tony Hinchcliffe, uh, I know, uh, I think Shane Gillis just moved here, too. He didn't mention him. Um, I'm pretty sure Michelle Wolf might also live here. I feel like I read that recently. All moving there and comedy mothership opening up. Any knowledge of the Kill Tony podcast or any thought of trying to go on and do a minute of stand-up? I have knowledge of all that shit. I have no interest in doing stand-up at all. I did it that year. It was a lot of fun. I got a lot of enjoyment out of it. It's a whole hell of a lot of work, and to do it and do it well, I think, would require a lot more commitment than I am willing to give it. And I'm really happy. Uh, I'm really happy with my, <laughs> with the shit that I do right now. So I don't think I'll be doing it. I don't have any interest in going on kill Tony. What are my thoughts on the comedy Mecca that is Austin now? I think it's awesome that there's comedy seven days a week in Austin and multiple places having stand up seven days a week, coffee shops, established comedy clubs, uh, ven- like musical venues, there are there's open mics all the time. I see them advertised everywhere, and clearly you're getting a lot of uh, big LA talent coming through or big global talent coming through Austin now because of the uh, the mothership opening up. I'll say as a local, it was cool to go the first time. Uh, it was annoying to go the second time. And by the third time, it just doesn't seem fucking worth it because it's hard to get tickets. I don't know if it's still as hard to get tickets as it was when I tried, but like tickets went on sale at noon on Mondays and you had they would be sold out by like 1203. And it was a lot of like refreshing and, you know, like you're trying to get tickets to a fucking Taylor Swift concert. And it's just a lot of effort to put in. And honestly, once you've done it once, it's fucking it's cool and it's awesome. And it's cool to see a big established comedians in town. That's really neat. It makes you feel like you're in a big city. And it's one of the things that I like whenever I go to L.A. or New York, I always try to see uh, stand up because of the the level of talent that's in those cities. So it's awesome that we have some on some level commiserate talent, but it's a lot of the same people. And so if you've seen them once or twice, you know. You, you might want to spread it out a little bit. Otherwise, you're seeing a lot of the same material as they're working it out, which is cool. And if you're, a, I guess, a student of comedy, it's cool to watch that process. But if you just want to go and catch some, some stand-up, uh, it's, it's, it's kind of annoying and hard to get to, if I'm being honest with you. I can't speak for all the new open mic nights and stuff that are all over town. I don't really go out much, but hopefully it's thriving and there are a lot of... It's definitely attracting a lot of talent. I walked by that comedy mothership one night when they were doing auditions and there were probably 150 people in line to audition. That's fucking crazy. So 
surely there's some some genuine talent in that 150 people. So uh, I guess we'll see where it goes. Okay, next question. Uh, that was kind of an anma question, but I went ahead and answered it anyway. Next question is from Slumped God. You've been in the public eye for so long. What are you looking forward to the most once you retire? Will it be a relief? Will it be strange? Do you think any part of you will miss it? This is a, uh, this is a loaded question, Slumped God. Uh, I'll take it in pieces and chunks. What are you looking forward to the most once you retire? I'm, I'm looking forward to stepping off the treadmill, if that makes sense. Uh, not having to think in terms of, of reinventing the wheel over and over and over again. A lot of people in my life tell me that I won't be able to retire, that I won't be able to stop, that I am addicted to work and the creative process, but I don't think those people know me as well as they think they do, and that's not to be rude. Uh, will it be a relief? Yes. Yes, it'll be a relief. Um, I love what I do. I genuinely do, and I can't imagine doing anything else with my time, or at least I can't imagine anything else I could do this that, that I could do well <laughs> with my time. Like I think I'm probably operating uh, uh, at my most efficient and capable in, in this role. I don't think I was meant for a lot of other stuff. But man, the idea of not doing it anymore, not hustling, not having to, to fucking, not having to come up with shit constantly, you know, it's... It's fun and it's awesome to to have the job where you have to create content and come up with ideas for new content consistently or try to, you know, to talk on a microphone for hours and hours a week and have to come up with shit to talk about and, and try to pour through your life to try to find interesting stories or, or dumb things you've done or try to look at the world as you go through it to try to find moments to pull out that you think will be interesting to talk about and, and try to build narratives that way. And then, you know, just the process of trying to be funny with your friends and 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 uh, all of the the creativity that is born through that and the the, the universe that's built through those dumb jokes and, and all the stuff we do in, in the like face podcast, for instance, is is amazing. But um if I didn't do those things, I would listen to a shitload of music and relax. And I'm, I'm looking, <laughs> I'll be honest, I'm looking forward to it. Will it be strange? I don't think so. I don't think so. The thing that's going to be difficult, is there any part of it that you'll miss? Um, I don't, I don't know. I don't think so. I don't know. I be, I, I get a lot of enjoyment out of the creative process, the problem solving, the puzzling of it. And I figured that'll always be present in my life in some way. You know, I, I, I don't know. I figure I'll always be working, even if it's just like me in the garage tinkering on fucking, I don't know, building a shelf or something. I'm going to, I'm hopefully going to have fun doing it and, and, and extract as much joy out of it. I think I'm going to be okay because I'm, I grew up trying to have to entertain myself. Being an only child who moved around a lot, I grew up having to entertain myself and create little games for me, for myself to play and, and ways to distract myself. And, and I, I'm going to be doing that regardless of whether I'm getting paid for it or not. And so I don't know how much will change. The, what, the thing I worry about is the content is, is how I maintain a lot of relationships right now. It's how I maintain my friendship with Gavin and Andrew and Eric and, and Gus. And, and so I don't know what happens to, to my outside of work relationships when I don't work anymore. But it's also going to be a while before I have to figure that out. So, uh, you know, that's a, pro that's a problem for future Jeff to solve. Uh, as far as 
what I'm looking forward to the most. I don't know if I actually answered that. I think the thing, I'm definitely looking forward to stopping. That's going to be awesome. I think I mentioned that. But I, I, the one thing I would like after all of this is said and done, when, I'm, when I no longer feel the need to, to try to communicate to an audience in some fashion, I would like to disappear. I would like to just for it to end and when it ends to be a hard stop. I would like to completely and totally disappear and uh, and live very quietly and privately uh, almost as if I didn't exist invisibly if if possible. That would be the ultimate goal to become invisible. The better devil said, "All right. So, that's cute. Aside from punk rock, what would you say your favorite genre of music is and who's your favorite artist in that genre? I don't know that I have a favorite genre, including punk rock. I kind of, uh, with music, it took me a long time to, to kind of open up and realize that I, I liked other kinds of music and I didn't have to fit in this, you know, rigid, <laughs> within the rule set of this anti-rule set punk rock movement. But uh, let me think. Uh, I'll just Can I just list some favorite artists? Because I like a lot of different genres. Uh, the people that I keep coming back to the most, that I've been listening to consistently, like the people that I listen to the most in my life, I listen to Tierra Whack a lot. If you've never listened to Tierra Whack, you should. She's phenomenal. Uh, I listen to Shannon and the Clams every day, probably. And right now, as a matter of fact, I was I listened to, I like the song Vanishing so much that I was driving home from filming Anmo with Eric today, and I listened to it three times in a row in my car, just singing at the top of my lungs. I really like that song. Uh, so I would say Shannon and the Clams, and then I've been really into Ted Hawkins lately. I don't know how long that uh, that infatuation will last, but I'm really, really enjoying him. And I would say the, the musician that I probably enjoy the most and the most consistently in my life now and for the last few years, and I don't know that I've ever really talked about it, is Lana Del Rey. I think that uh, she's pretty brilliant and has a tremendous voice and is really interesting and creative and experimental. And I've liked every album she's made and I've listened to every Lana Del Rey song probably 300 times. So uh, yeah, I would say outside of punk rock, Tierra Whack, Lana Del Rey, Ted Hawkins, Shannon and the Clams. Those are the, those are like the staples these days. Old Lion says, I would love to hear your thoughts on Green Day. You skirted around them a little in the last episode, but I'd love to hear your thoughts on them selling out in a similar vein to Jawbreaker and your thoughts on their songs. Well, uh, I would, I guess I could say I was, you know, I was like 18, 17, 18 uh, when they kind of broke. At the time, I thought Dookie was a okay album and then I just kind of got overexposed to it. Like it's super catchy, and I, I I will admit that. And I thought that Billy Joe was kind of cool. He, I mean, he was he just kind of had a cool vibe to him when I was an eighteen year old impressionable kid getting into punk rock. Uh, but you know, the scene politics beat Green Day down for me pretty hard. And then I was much like I felt about Jawbreaker for a time. I thought I shouldn't like them because they were sellouts. Uh, one thing that I will say that was annoying was just all the media attention that was coming from from that punk explosion, and you know. It was annoying at the time, but also probably awesome and just showed that kind of music to a, a, a lot more people than would have seen it and probably helped create a lot of awesome bands. And so it's one of those things you look back on now and see with a totally different lens. But uh, I guess they were kind of a guilty pleasure of mine at the time. I didn't really like any of the stuff 
as they became more musically talented. Uh, the first three albums were pretty good. And I think Dookie was the last one I bought. And I definitely enjoyed it and listened to it. So looking back at it now, I liked them a lot more than I probably would have admitted to my friends at the time when it was considered poserish to like them. DMWCFILMZ, DMWC Films says, how's your day going? It's actually, you caught me on a really good day. Uh, it's like 70 degrees outside in Austin. I went with Eric. We were filming an Anma supplemental, and we decided to just spend a morning together doing fun stuff. So we, we, we loved ourselves, and then we went to a coffee shop, and then we went record shopping, and then we went and got pizza together, and we just talked the whole way through and kind of narrated what we were doing. We have no idea if the audio is going to work, but if it does... Hopefully it'll be something interesting and unique and a little different. And it was a lot of fun. So I'm having a great day and I'm happy to sit down and do this. 0% Chump by Volume says, more book talk. Favorite books, least favorite books, a book you hated reading but loved the story. <sighs> favorite books. I've talked pretty extensively about my love for Catch-22 and uh, old Jack Kerouac stuff. Uh, I would say the books that I look back at enjoying the most that I still read the most. I still, I, if I had a favorite genre, which I don't, but if I did, it would probably be like uh, crime noir, 1920s, 1930s LA crime noir. A lot of Dash Hammett and Raymond Chandler are both huge uh, favorites of mine and, and books that I reread. I don't reread a lot of stuff, but I reread a lot of Continental Lot books and a lot of, uh, pretty much all of Dash Hammett I've read like three times. Uh, as far as least favorite books, I don't really have any least favorite books. I, I, if I had to pick a favorite book right now or a book that I think about the most that I really that really hit me the most since Catch-22 did all those years ago, uh, it would definitely be Cannery Row. I read that book, I don't know, probably 10 years ago now, and I've read it, reread it like three times. And uh, I, I love John Steinbeck in general, but Cannery Row, just the... The book is so fucking charming because it's so it's very John Steinbeck. It's it's hilarious and poignant and beautiful and kind of horrifying and heartbreaking and sad all in one. And the main character is the town, not the people around it. And it's just it's just a really awesome way to tell a story. So if you ever get a chance to read Canary Row, I would recommend that. Read anything by Dash Hammett or Raymond Chandler. As far as books, I didn't like reading, but I liked the story. It's funny. I was thinking about this the other day. I don't know if you read or if anybody's familiar. I'm sure you are. They were popular a couple years ago. I think Lev Grossman was the writer. They read this series of books called The Magicians. I liked the setting of those books. I read the first two or three. I liked the world created. I didn't really like the story. You know, I was thinking about it the other day. I was thinking about like the, the first couple of chapters and how the kid is introduced into the world of I don't know, fucking filigree or whatever it's called. It's been years since I read them and how I just, I wanted the, I'm not trying to be insulting to the writer. I just, I wanted to enjoy the writing more because I liked the, the world that was painted. I just didn't enjoy the story involved. So I guess that'd be my, that'd be my answer off the top of my head. Real Smitty wants to know what was my first tattoo, my worst tattoo, my most detailed one, my dumbest one, my most expensive one. That's a lot. What if I, what if I just tell you my first tattoo? My first tattoo I got when I was 18 years old in Austin, Texas. I was stationed at Fort Hood and my friend Jason had got his first tattoo a couple of months earlier. I think maybe he'd gotten two at this point. He had like a little green alien and I don't remember what, I think he might have had like a bad religion tattoo. And 
I was really, I really, I was, man, I was dying to get tattoos. I was, it was, I thought tattoos were the fucking coolest and it was so punk rock and I wanted to be so, I wanted to be like a fucking little Henry Rollins so bad. And so Jason and I went down to, went down from Colleen where we were stationed at Fort Hood down to Austin one weekend and there was a, uh, a tattoo parlor on the drag. Actually, there was a, there was a sex shop on the drag called Forbidden Fruit, which is a chain that's local to Austin and still around. There's a few of them, and it's awesome. If you want to go buy, uh, you know, lube or, or any kind of sex toys or whatever in a, in a very sex-positive environment, Forbidden Fruit is the place to go. Really, really wonderful people and a great place. However, the location uh, that was on the drag, there was a location on the drag. This is back in probably 1994. And in the back of it, for a span of like, I think it was less than a month, there was a tattoo parlor. And by tattoo parlor, I mean there was a, there was like a break room. And I got tattooed. The, the tattoo artist used the, a bathroom sink to, to set up on. And so I didn't sit on a toilet. I don't remember sitting on a toilet, but I think I might've sat just on a, like a folding chair in a bathroom. He might've sat on a toilet for all I remember. Anyway, if I think I go into this in more detail, we did a documentary a few years ago about tattooing. And I think I actually went to like the director took me to the spot on the drag where it was and had me tell the story in front of the, I don't know, it's like a fucking urban outfitters or something now, I believe, but had me go through the whole story. So I might tell it better there, but what I remember is we go in, I really wanted to get the black flag tattoo in the exact same spot that Henry Rollins had it. So we go in, I asked the guy, the guy working there, I'll, I remember his full name, but I'm just going to call him Bobby. Bobby was his first name. And I said, can I get this tattoo? My friend Jason helped me out. I was so fucking scared and nervous. And he's like, yeah, man, I can hook you up. And he was, I didn't recognize it at the time, but he was tweaking. Now I can pretty clearly see that. And, uh, he, uh, he brought me in and he sat me down and he freehanded the the bars on my arm with uh, with the pen and they were crooked and I was too scared to say anything about it and I figured that it was my fault that my skin was moving wrong or something and that it would probably work out just fine and then he proceeded to use what I now understand was a dirty needle I don't know that it was dirty let me say that let me let me go back I don't know that it was dirty. I know that it was dull. He used a dull needle because I'm still scarred there. And he gave me the outline. And I was fucking terrified because he, his hand was shaking so badly, his right hand, when he picked up the tattoo gun. And by the way, this is my first tattoo. But, and I, the first time I've ever seen anybody get a tattoo, my first time in a tattoo parlor. So I'm, I'm fucking dumb. I'm ignorant of the world. I'm 18 years old. I haven't seen anything i grew up in bumfuck alabama for most of my life i uh, i'm completely and totally naive and and trusting of everyone around me at all times and so i walk in and he his arm is shaking and i think oh i guess the tattoo gun is that vibrates that hard that's crazy and then i watched him steady his wrist with his left hand like he had to hold his left he had to hold his right wrist with his left hand so that he could tattoo me. And then he proceeded to give me the outline. It hurt like holy hell. I realize it hurt now because he buried the fucking needle and it was a dull needle. It was a reused needle. And then after he finished the outline, <laughs> I think that he was losing it. Like looking back on it now, I think that I caught him 
coming down or going up or something, and he was not in a place that he should be, clearly not in a place that he should be tattooing in, in life, let alone in this moment. And, uh, and he was fucking weird and scaring the shit out of me. And my friend Jason just kept looking at me and like, give me a thumbs up. Like, this is good. This is how it's supposed to go. This is cool, man. This is cool. This guy's punk rock, you know? And, uh, and then he goes, all right, man, I'm out of ink. I can't finish it. Uh, you'll have to come back in a couple of weeks when this heals and then I can fill it in for free. And I just went, oh, okay. Yeah. I guess you get the outline now and then the, the shading later, which is true when you're getting a, you know, an eight hour body piece on your back and they have to do the entire outline and it's going to take a hundred fucking years and there there's no time to fill the rest in. Uh, not so much true when you're getting four black bars on your uh, forearm that should take about a mediocre tattoo artist, maybe 25 minutes to do start to finish. And so uh, he was clearly fucking on one or off one and didn't want to be tattooing anybody right now. And, it, and in retrospect, I'm glad that we ended it there and he didn't do any more damage to my body, but I went away. I thought, cool. I have this outline of, <laughs> of a black flag tattoo. Two weeks later, we went back and it was gone. It was just like, it had never happened. And people were like, yeah, he doesn't work anymore. No forwarding address. Don't know where, don't know what happened. And, uh, so clearly I think it went pretty, pretty wrong, pretty fast. And, uh, I just, slipped in and got that bad first tattoo in a very brief window of operation in that place. I think uh, ultimately I found out through the documentary that it wasn't even open for a month uh, before they did away with it or before he flamed out, whatever, before whatever happened to end that place. So then I just had the black flag bars on my arm for a while, or at least the uncolored bars for a while, and I went to Germany a few months later to visit a friend, and <laughs> we were in a mall in Heidelberg, and there was a tattoo parlor in the mall, like in a kiosk in the middle of the mall. And I just went in there and I said, can you fill this in? And they were like, yeah. And I got it filled in. And then that was it. I was off to the races at that point. It was a really unremarkable experience. The only thing I remember about it is that I just discovered a tattoo parlor at a kiosk in the f on the floor of the mall in Heidelberg. And I thought, well, this seems like the perfect place to do it. Uh, and that was it. That was uh, after that, that tattoo got finished. It wasn't nearly as, it was way more professional. It wasn't nearly as scary or as gross or as, uh, uh, health threatening as the first experience. And that probably cemented the next billion tattoos I got. So there's a story about my tattoos. Nathan's reg, regular name, I guess. Nathan's regal name says, you've talked a lot about how busy the early days are and when you would quite literally get off the plane and go right back to work. How did you balance a job that was that demanding and a family? And when did you find time to yourself? When was the first time that got easier and the weight was kind of lifted? How did I balance a job that was demanding and a family and my time for myself? Uh, extremely poorly and in every unhealthy way I could find. Um, I drank through most of it, didn't understand uh, what to do with the stress, and so I just tried to ignore it and soldier on, and and just, I, I remember I would always tell myself, you know, you can sleep when you're old, you can sleep when you're old, you can sleep when you're old, and I, I would just, you know, I don't know, it's kind of a, looking back on that time, it's kind of a, you know, I think I was a pretty shitty, I think I was pretty shitty at all of those things for a little while, and so uh, I, I guess that I didn't balance it well, I didn't balance it at all. Uh, Zevi says, you traveled a lot throughout your career and all your travels. How often did you check out the local music scene? And do you have any stories from those times? Dude, that's a great question. And uh, I am embarrassed to say almost never. I was, 
at a point in my life when 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 we started RVB and started Rooster Teeth and you know when we started to travel where I was in my late 20s and early 30s I was I guess coming out of the music scenes that I was in I was kind of I guess at the time I thought maturing out of that and my focus was pretty heavily on the career and what we were doing and so when there was free time in cities Gus and I loved to go to dive bars we loved to find like local dive bars to drink at but even that it was mostly most of the free time was spent you know spending time with like the mega 64 people or friends that worked at Microsoft or Bungie and just trying to be in and of that world and build connections and friendships and grow, you know, grow what we were doing. And it was pretty singularly focused. And so even when I was in, I don't know, a cool ass place that probably had an awesome punk scene, like Edinburgh, Scotland, I was far more either concerned with why I was there or uh, or just, you know, busy with why I was there. I, I, I did a pretty piss poor job of that, I, I guess is what I would say. Uh, okay, I have a bunch more of these to answer, but I think I'm probably running out of time, so I'll just try to knock out one or two more. And I guess I'll have to do this again, if, if you guys enjoyed this, just to finish out the questions I didn't get to. I didn't get to. Hippie Koala says, I would love to hear you expand about your love of Michigan. Did you always think Michigan would be a place you retired? I don't know that Michigan is going to be a place I retire. I'll be honest. I, I really didn't have much of an opinion of Michigan. Uh, I like the movie Gross Point Blank. I remember that. But uh, I didn't really have much of an opinion about Michigan one way or the other until Emily's family moved up there and we started to visit, you know. We'd been visiting there for a while, for, I don't know, four or five years now. And I just kind of slowly fell in love with that. I've, I think Detroit uh, had, had just a tremendous amount of charm. And it's, it's, there's an energy that I discovered in the city that feels a lot like the energy I felt in Austin when I moved here. Uh, a lot of possibility, a lot of like growth, a lot of people, a lot of pride. Uh, the people that live in Detroit fucking love Detroit and they are ride or die for Detroit and I really appreciate that and I think that there's just a, a great sense of community there from what I've experienced in my in my visits and I just I just like the vibe of the place it's kind of grimy and gritty and and gorgeous in that way and then you know her family lives out in the suburbs which are completely different and lovely and kind of like like the suburbs you see in a John Hughes movie when you think like, wow, how do these teenagers get to live in this fucking neighborhood? You know what I mean? Like you see the kids driving around Uncle Buck and you're like, fuck, it must be nice, right? It, it just seems like the most perfect, wholesome American uh, experience. And that's kind of what the outskirts feel like. I don't know. I just, I, I, I love it. And then there's nature everywhere, driving up to the top of the Mitt and exploring Mackinac Island and all the little seaside towns along the way or all the little lakeside towns along the way. It's just, it's it's incredibly charming, and it's got a ton to offer. And I feel like every day I read something new about it that is exciting to me. You know, I feel like I've had a lot of enthusiasm for Austin and Texas over the last 30 years, and I've done everything I can think of to do here and explore everywhere I can think of to go. And and I know that there will always be more places to, to discover. Uh, I'll never have seen it all, but I think I'm just ready to explore a new place. And I hope it's Michigan. But I'm not certain it's going to be Michigan. Nothing's written in stone. Who knows what the future holds in store? And even if we do move to Michigan, I'm not looking to retire there necessarily. I'm just looking to live there for a while. You know, I, I don't know. I don't think Emily and I want to feel completely and totally settled down 
anywhere we are. I think I think we like the option of 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 having a new adventure. So I hope that Michigan is an adventure in the in the future at some point, but I don't know that it'll be my last one. So who knows where we'll retire to. Riley <laughs> Riley Wiley Coyote asks, what is your favorite Jimmy Buffett song, lol or yak rot vibes artist in general? I appreciate your most recent episode on Jawbreaker. I learned a lot and your passion is contagious. Well, thank you very much for that. That's very nice of you. Uh, I mean, I like Yacht Rock as a genre. All the songs are pretty much the same to me. But if I had to pick my favorite Jimmy Buffett song, man, I really like Come Monday. I like Pencil Thin Mustache. I like Little Miss Magic. I like his really, like that earlier stuff. But if I had to pick my favorite Jimmy Buffett song, it's hands down easily A Pirate Looks at 40 which is a really sweet and poignant song. And I like it because it was my dad's favorite song and he loved it. And when I think about that song, when I hear that song, it just makes me think of my dad. And I can remember watching my dad in his little office, <laughs> in his little reclining chair with his feet up and his headphones on, hooked into his, his little hi-fi system that he had, listening to that song. That was his, that was like his vibe, you know? And, uh, man, anytime I hear that song, it takes me back to that place in my life. And I just, it just makes me, just gives me the warmest memories of my father. So pirate looks at 40. Uh, oh, here's another tattoo related one that I think I can answer. Majestic rocker says, so I'm sorry if you've been asked this before and I've just never personally heard your answer to it, but I was wondering about tattoos and pain tolerance lately thought about getting a tattoo myself and was wondering exactly where to get it from your experience. What would you say is the most painful place on the body to get a tattoo or to avoid what would be the most comfortable to get one? I hope this isn't too much of a bullshit answer, but everybody's different. And I have, for instance, I've seen people have real problems getting their ditch tattooed, which is the inside of your, like the inside part of the crease of your elbow on the inside. Uh, I have both of my ditches tattooed and it wasn't bad. However, I've seen people get their ribs tattooed and grin through it and it almost killed me. My chest, I have an unfinished chest tattoo because it hurts so bad. And I've seen people blow through chest tattoos like it didn't hurt them at all. So it really is kind of, I think, uh, left up to the individual. And I also think, I'm not sure, but I can tell you the places that are generally considered to be the most painful and to avoid. And I don't think you would get your first tattoo in any of those places naturally. But uh, the area behind your knee, like that crease back there, is supposedly one of the two or three worst places on the body to get tattooed. The only place I've heard that's supposedly worse than that is the crease spot between your thigh and your butt, like right there where your butt like hangs into your thigh. Apparently that spot is excruciating. Uh, ribs are considered very bad and elbows are like torture for me. I, elbows the most painful tattoo I've ever got. I got both my elbows done and touched up. And they swole to the size of grapefruits after it was done with just fluid jostling around. And so even the like the tattoo in itself just felt like hot hell. But then the recovery sucked as well, which uh, is kind of like uh, extra fuck you at the end of the day. So uh, don't get tattooed in any of those places for your first tattoo. Honestly, forearm is a great spot to get tattooed. Bicep, great spot to get tattooed. Any, most of the places on the on the outside of your arm, your, any of that area right there, as long as there's not direct bone under it, you're probably going to be okay. But it's a tattoo and it hurts. And I'll be honest with you, 
they don't ever stop hurting. If anything, tattoos hurt more the older I get and the less I enjoy it. It fucking sucks. There's nothing fun about it. It's just painful. Okay, I think I'm going to end it here with this one. AV Artist says, How hard was the transition from soldier to civilian? I did eight years as a Marine and got out last year, which coincidentally is also whenever I started getting into all the podcasts and somehow hearing you talk about all your service helped me deal with it. Oh, well, thank you so much, uh, AV Artist. And uh, by the way, uh, thank you for your service. Uh, in all seriousness, the eight years is a, is a lot of a life to dedicate to your country. And uh, you should be incredibly proud that, that you did that. And, and I am proud of you. And I, and, I, and I genuinely appreciate that sacrifice because I only did five and that was hard enough. The transition from soldier to civilian, uh, I'll do my best to answer this as truthfully as possible, but that was 25 years ago. So who knows? Honestly, I do, I do remember being scared to death. I remember having to go through all these separation classes and seminars where they would teach you how to write a resume and teach you how to interview, teach you how to find jobs in the hidden job market. I remember that being a big thing they would hammer into you. They would say there were like 70% of all jobs are passed through the hidden job market. They never end up in the paper or as an official listing anywhere. So it's all about who you know. It was a lot. I remember there was a lot of these like very basic networking classes they made you go through, that kind of stuff. And uh, I remember just being terrified. And I, I did have a job in the army because, you know, you were in the military, you know, you were probably fucking broke the entire time you were in there. So I was working at a video store at night anyway. So when I got out of the army, I just transitioned to doing more hours at the video store, which helped. And then I interviewed all day long for jobs that I didn't get in film and journalism. But I also remember that I had saved up a little bit of money. And so I had a bit of a cushion and it was summer in New Jersey. And so I went surfing every day and I, I gave myself a summer to kind of be a beach bum, even though I still had a job and I was working probably 30 hours a week at a video store and I was applying for jobs constantly. I managed to get up and, and go surf almost every day that summer with a friend of mine named Rich and had kind of the most relaxing summer of my life. And uh, and I remember that part being awesome. So I think after I figured out I wasn't going to starve to death, it was okay. Man, I hope that answers your question in some way. Okay, I think that's probably more than enough. Hopefully that was interesting in any way to you whatsoever. As I said, if it was and you want me to do this again, just let me know. Send an email to jeff at uh, ericsboss.com or eric at jeffsboss.com with any kind of questions or feedback or send me an email and tell me not to do this again if you don't want me to. Uh, I, I really don't know unless you tell me. All right. All right.